We'll hear argument next in case 06-1505, Meacham versus Knowles Atomic Powered Laboratory. Mr. Russell. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This case presents a single important but narrow question. Everyone agrees that under the reasonable factor other than age provision of the Age Discrimination and Employment Act, a business practice that is reasonable is not unlawful, even if it has a disparate impact on older workers. The question here is simply what happens in cases in which the, the proof on reasonableness is in equipoise, which party bears the risk of non-persuasion. Now, on that question, the statute is not silent, such as to leave to the courts to decide for themselves what answer makes the most sense. Is there a hypothetical universe where a, a scheme that discriminates on the basis of age is reasonable, but there's another alternative that doesn't discriminate on the basis of age. Is the first alternative still reasonable, or does the existence of a non-discriminating alternative make it unreasonable? This Court made quite clear in the City of Jackson that the existence of alternatives, while sufficient perhaps to satisfy work codes and to show a violation under Section 482, is not sufficient to show uh, that the action is unreasonable. And that's what the, case, the Court found uh, to be uh, the case in Smith. So the standards are, in fact, quite different. Um, the reasonable factor other than age provision looks at the reasonableness of the actual existing practice, uh, and that's where the because of age uh, refers to the business practice there. It doesn't. If, if that's true, then uh, is it necessary either on the burden of production or burden of persuasion aspect of the case to consider other alternatives? It is, in our view, necessary in order to decide whether there's a violation. Well, why is it necessary in light of the answers you, you gave me at the outset? It is necessary in order to establish whether you even get to the RFOA provision. By its terms. Whether you even get to. Even get to it, because by its terms, the RFOA provision only applies to conduct that is otherwise prohibited by Section 482. And the test for whether something's otherwise prohibited under Section 482 is Ward's Code. This Court in Smith said that language, which is identical to the language Congress used to describe the unlawful employment practice in Title VII, has the same meaning in both statutes. And, and in order to establish a violation of Ward's Code, we do have to often look at questions of alternatives. Mr. Russell, this is the problem that I had with your double inquiry. First, you decide business necessity. Then you decide reasonable factor other than age. Once you determine that there is no business necessity, there's a readily available alternative, so what you're left with is a pretext for age discrimination, what, what function is there for anything else to perform? I mean, I understand the business necessity, whether you have it pre-1991 or post but I don't understand putting this other test on top of it. It sounds like you're making it harder for the for the plaintiff. Well, we, we think that the layering of the tests arises out of the structure of the statute as Congress wrote it. Um, if this Court disagrees with us, however, and thinks that there is room in the statutory language to treat the language of 4A2 differently in some sense or to apply a different Ward's Cove test, then you're still left with the question of who bears the burden of reasonableness. And on that grounds, we agree entirely with the EOC that that question is still determined by the language of the statute, which makes quite clear that Congress thought that this was an, an exception to liability upon which the employer bears the burden of proof. And it made that, made that clear both by setting 
the RFOA up as an exception to liability, which this Court has long told Congress will be construed as establishing an affirmative defense absent strong indications of contrary legislative intent, and by sandwiching that defense in the same sentence as two other affirmative defenses, which would be a very strange thing to do if Congress, in fact, intended the courts to figure out, you know, one of the three is not like the others, that it's intended instead as a, a modification of the definition. And third, Congress, I think it, it does — it is telling that in you defining the unlawful employment practice, that is, in defining the plaintiff's case in chief, Congress used the same language that it did in Title VII, and this Court has never construed that language to, get, to require proof of unreasonableness. Well, your friend, of course, makes the point that um, the age discrimination prohibition is narrower in scope than Title VII, that there are likely to be more instances in which a reasonable factor other than age came into play than there would be a basis for discrimination on the basis of race. We acknowledge that. This Court pointed out in Smith that Congress itself recognized that there was a difference between age and other kinds of discrimination. But it took that uh, difference into account not by uh, defining the unlawful employment practice differently, but by providing age discrimination defendants a capacious defense that's not available to any other uh, defendant in a federal employment discrimination statute. And by, in 1991, uh, not extending the modifications towards Cove to uh, ADEA plaintiffs, Congress already specifically addressed this question of whether Ward's Cove should be adjusted in order to make age discrimination claims harder to prove than Title VII claims, and it agreed that it should. But it didn't do it in the way that respondents suggest. Instead, they lowered the bar for Title VII plaintiffs and left in place the Ward's Cove test for age discrimination. Isn't it a strain to say that an employment practice was because of an individual's age but at the same time was based on reasonable factors other than age. Well, doesn't the latter negate the, the former or come very close to negating the former? And if that's the case, doesn't that suggest that it's not really an affirmative defense, but uh, what's necessary to show liability? I don't think it does. And let's, we use the example in our brief of a weightlifting requirement. It's quite possible for that requirement, and quite likely, that it will have a disparate impact on older workers because of their age the effect will be felt by workers because of their age. At the same time, it is quite possible that that practice itself will be entirely reasonable. And, it, and the difference is in between what the because of age refers to in the two different provisions. So if you look in, on page 3 of the blue brief, you have the language of the RFOA provision. And the reasonable — the factors other than age refers to, in that case, um, the differentiation, that is, the business practice itself. But if you turn to the prior page on page 1A and look at the language of A2, the business practice, that is, the limiting, segregating, or classifying, doesn't have to be because of age. If it would, there would be a disparate treatment claim. Instead, what because of age refers to there is the effect of that facially neutral practice. That is, the, the employee has to show that the neutral practice deprives or tend to deprive people of opportunities because of their age. And the way that you do that it's through the first step of the Ward's Cove analysis by showing that the practice falls more heavily on older workers as a group so that you can reach the conclusion that the plaintiff is feeling the effect because of her age as opposed to because of her sex or some other reason specific to her. So it's not the fact that a showing of RFOA negates the showing that, that it, a disparate impact is felt because of age um, by, by the plaintiff. As we were — as I was mentioning before, 
the language of the statute, we think, strongly points in, in favor of an ordinary reading of this as an affirmative defense. Respondent's principal objection is that this doesn't give adequate weight to the differences uh, between age and other forms of discrimination. But as I mentioned, uh, we, we do think uh, that Congress took that into account, but in a different way. And there's, we think, quite an important value here in, in providing Congress clear rules of interpretation so that it knows when it enacts statutes using a particular formulation. The courts will construe it in the ordinary way, absent some compelling uh, indication to the contrary. We recognize, of course, in Betts that this Court found such a compelling counterindication in, in the legislative history of, of that statute and in the, uh, the law's traditional treatment of benefits, uh, retirement benefits and seniority rights. But Respondents can't point to any kind of similar uh, showing in this case that Congress would have intended this catch-all provision uh, to mean something other than what it seems to say. The, the, the expression comes from the Equal Pay Act with a substitution. The Equal Pay Act is any other factor other than sex, and here it's a reasonable factor other than age. And I'm, my impression is that that formulation in the Equal Pay Act has been rather problematic. First, you have to find there's a differential between the pay of men and the pay of women. So, and then you go to, but any other factor other than sex. Are you suggesting any different analysis for the age category than for the sex category? Well, certainly. What you have to show before you get to the defense is different in the two statutes. They are similar in the sense that neither requires uh, proof of intentional discrimination. For example, in Corning Glassworks, all the plaintiffs showed there was that uh, a facially neutral practice that is paying the night shift folks more than the day shift folks uh, resulted in women getting paid less than men for the same work, and that was sufficient uh, to shift the burden uh, over to the employer to show that it was based on uh, any other factor other than age. And in here, uh, we think that it's, it's similar, that the, the plaintiff has to show that in a neutral employment practice has a disparate impact on the basis of age. We think, in our view, in addition, the plaintiff has to make the, the full words code showing that would be sufficient in Title VII to establish liability conclusively. And at that point, then the, the, the burden does shift to the employer, but it's a modest the bur burden. The burden of production, of course. Yes. And what about the burden of persuasion? The burden of persuasion as well. We think that this is a well, why, why? Why is it that if the employer has the burden of production, and I assume that is satisfied by his saying, here's the plan that we used, here are the factors we use, here's the reason we use them. Uh, what is so difficult uh, uh, for the, what, what is the difficulty in saying that the employee then has to show that that is unreasonable? Well, we think there are some difficulties, but it's ultimately, I think, beside the point. The question is not what rule would make sense, but what does the statute, what rule does the statute contemplate? And we think by phrasing the RFOA provision as a traditional you think the statute doesn't make sense, so we don't? I think the statute makes perfect sense the way it's written. Um, but well, if you disagree. Your point that it's sandwiched between two things that are clearly affirmative defenses, BFOQ, the employer has the burden of production and persuasion. And I forgot what the third one. The foreign law exception. Is, is also an, an affirmative defense. So I take it your point is why should this middle one be any different? Yes, if we think it would be entirely odd for Congress. Well, I'm, I'm well aware of the statutory uh, uh, 
format here. But what I want to ask is, why is it uh, uh, beyond the employee's um, means and, and capacity to show that this is unreasonable? It seems to me that that's the gravamen of his case. I don't think it's beyond the employee's means. I don't think it's an impossible burden. Certainly Congress could have written the statute in a way that imposed that burden on the employees. We do think that it makes sense because the, 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 the factors that weigh in on the reasonableness tend to be uh, in the, the employer's possession or they have better access to it. It makes sense for them to bear the burden. But ultimately our argument isn't grounded on the claim that it, it would be impossible for, for Congress to have imposed that burden. It's grounded on the claim that the text of the statute indicates that Congress made a different decision and that it accommodated the employer's interests in, in, in dealing with the special facts of age discrimination. Well, if I find the text of the statute neutral uh, or at least not clear, then I am, uh, it is proper for me to ask as a matter of efficiency where the burden should be placed, is it not? It is. It is. And my answer is that we do think that most of the facts going to reasonableness are, are in the employer's Well, but the facts, I mean, given discovery, that doesn't seem a very compelling case. Once you require the employer to come up, in other words, the burden of uh, production, and say, well, the reason we did it was this, then it's just a matter of discovery. The plaintiff can say, oh, well, then let me depose the person who's the head of, you know, whatever, the part, if it's for safety reasons for some reason or training issues, well, then we depose the person who's in charge of training or safety and ask them those questions. And it doesn't seem to me that the uh, fact that the employer possesses the information, uh, given very liberal discovery we have, is, is much of a factor. Well, that's true in every case in which informational disadvantages uh, are, are cited as a reason for putting the burden of proof on one party or the other. Discovery can always mitigate that disadvantage. But we ultimately think, um, you know, if you find the statute is so ambiguous as to uh, think that it's a really critical consideration of what makes the most sense, then you ought to defer to the judgment of the EEOC on this question. And I would like to address, if I could, one specific. The argument was that EEOC never spoke to dis disparate impact? Well, it's, it's certainly clear that the EEOC what their position is, and that they read their regulation as, as addressing disparate impact. And we think that although it's an inartfully drafted regulation, uh, by using the term individual claim of discriminatory treatment rather than the term of art disparate treatment, uh, the language is broad enough to bear uh, their reading, particularly when you see that it was enacted uh, in the aftermath of a Department of Labor regulation that nobody disputes addresses uh, disparate impact cases, and they in had no indication that they were disavowing that position. But if I could address uh, the one, one other In this area of the law, treatment and impact are words that have tremendously different meaning. Isn't it strange to argue that they use the term treatment when they really meant impact? Well, I, I, I think that the terms of art are adverse impact and disparate treatment. And so that their failure to use either one of those, um, I think, supports the idea that they weren't talking about either one specifically. I agree. It's, it's a, a hard-to-read to regulation. Um, but if I could turn for a moment to the, the Adams Fruit objection, which is uh, respondents' insistence that this is not the kind of question uh, that the Court should defer to an agency on. And my point is simply that this is a substantive question of law. It's a question of whether reasonableness is an element of the unlawful employment practice in Section 4A2. It's the same kind of question this Court asked in Smith when it decided whether discriminatory uh, intent was an element of the 4A2 cause of action. And the Congress has delegated uh, authority to the EEOC to address those kinds of questions. In fact, 
fact, it went so far as to delegate to the authority or delegate to the EOC the authority not only to construe the exceptions that are in the Act, but to create additional exceptions. So I think Congress would be very surprised indeed to find out that this is not the sort of question to which it had delegated authority to the EOC to answer. If I could reserve the remainder of my time. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Josepher. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Congress enacted the ADEA against the settled background rule that defendants bear the burden of persuasion on affirmative defenses and other exceptions to liability. And Congress made very clear in the statute that the reasonable factors other than age provision is precisely such an affirmative defense. It did so first by saying that the provision applies to activities that are, quote, otherwise prohibited by subsection A. That has to mean that liability for disparate impacts exists under subsection A without regard to whether the employment practice is based on reasonable factors other than age. The latter inquiry is then a defense to the liability that would, quote, otherwise exist under subsection A. The second is a point that Justice Ginsburg made, which is that this subsection, F1, lists three different defenses right in a row. It appears to be common ground that the other two are clearly affirmative defenses as to which the employer bears the burden of persuasion. And considering that all three are introduced by the same otherwise prohibited language and that they are set forth in a single sentence separated only by commas, there's no basis for distinguishing among them. Now, the defendant's main argument seems to be — I'm not sure that if a statute contains three different um, conditions, uh, three different commands, that it follows that the procedural implementation for all of these has to be the same. Do you have any authority for that proposition? No, I mean, it's just a matter of how to interpret the particular statute. And, the, the, our, and since our point here is that this is a subsection that on its face sets if, forth the If defenses. you want to say that Congress was well aware of uh, burden of persuasion, burden of production, problems of affirmative action, and that they wouldn't have drafted it this way, that's one thing. I'm not sure that that's true. I suppose you could appeal to the maxim nociitor ex socies, couldn't you? Right. And I would say if it's in with, with two other chickens, it's probably a chicken. <laughs> exactly. I mean, the words are generally known by the company they keep, and with these three in a row, it would presumptively assume um, that they're all these chickens. These aren't words. They're operative provisions of law. Right. There are three separate clauses that are set forth, introduced by the same, in our view, dispositive language, which is the otherwise prohibited phrase. It's also the only way to make sense of the statute as a whole, because the defendant's view seems to be that because of age under subsection A2 and reasonable factors other than age under subsection F1 should essentially be conflated, such that the second more specific provision is essentially surplusage. Do you think that based on reasonable factors other than age in the ADEA means something different from because of such, uh, I'm sorry, that the, uh, the, because of an individual's age in the ADEA means something different from because of such individual's race, color, religion, sex, or national origin? It, it, modifies, it modifies something different. Uh, based on reasonable factors other than age modifies the underlying employment practice, the, the differentiation. Over an age, Two, and this is the, the basis of the Court's decision in Smith, in part, because of does not modify the underlying employment practice. It modifies the adverse effect of the employment practice. In other words, the statute refers to, and this is on page 1A of the Blue Brief Appendix, it refers to an employment practice such as a classification um, that adversely affects an individual 
because of that individual's age. So because of logically modifies what comes before it, which is adverse effect, and that's confirmed by the fact that the, the first sentence that talks about the employment practices is written in the plural, whereas adverse effect and because of are written in the singular with respect to individual, which is another point the Court made in footnote 6 in Smith. And that also has to be the case because disparate impact liability is not based on intent. It doesn't matter why the employer draft has the employment practice. What matters is the effect. So in any disparate impact case, there are two basic inquiries. The first is, is there an adverse effect on the protected class? And the second is, is the business practice nonetheless justifiable? And here Congress broke those two out. Subsection A2 addresses, is there an adverse effect on the, on the protected class? And then in F1, Congress specifically addressed the justification standard. That's one reason that we disagree with, with petitioners about their four-part test. Here, Congress clearly — here, the first part of Ward's Cove tells us whether there's an adverse effect under subsection A2. But then when it comes to the justification step, Congress clearly said that the justification is a reasonable factor other than age. So there's no need to read in a different justification standard from the second and third prongs of Ward's Cove. The problem is that you would be making this uh, provision more generous to the plaintiff then, for example, in Title VII, the defense is business necessity. The employer has the burden of production. The employee has the burden of persuasion. Here you'd be you're saying you come into the covered category, you've shown because of age through impact. And then the burden, the total burden, is on the employer. I'm, am I making myself clear? I think I, I think I understand the question. This statute is far more employer-friendly in the standard than Title VII because it relies on the reasonable factors, of the, the reasonableness defense, which is a much lower standard than the business necessity defense under Title VII. That reflects the fact that there are more innocent explanations for age disparities. The separate question here, though, on burden of persuasion, I think the key point there is that in Ward's Cove, this Court only had the equivalent of A2 to work with. So it had not much textual basis to go on with respect to the second and third factors of Ward's Cove and burden shifting. So the Court had to do a lot of gap filling once it recognized a disparate impact claim. Since then, however, in every one of these related civil rights statutes that Congress has enacted, it has spoken more clearly on the justification stage and has always, in every one of these statutes, put that burden on the defendant. It did it in the Equal Pay Act, according to this Court's decision in Corning Glass. It did it in the revised Title VII. It did it here. And even in the Americans with Disabilities Act, Congress specified that business necessity is a, quote, defense. Counsel, I was surprised not to see uh, Chevron cited in your brief. What, what sort of deference do you think we should give the EEOC regulations here? Um, our, in our view, the regulation itself, as far as it goes, is entitled to Chevron deference because it's a notice and comment rulemaking pursuant to delegated legislative authority. We recognize, however, that the, de that the regulation on its face is at best inartfully written, and therefore the question is how to interpret the regulation. We think EEOC's interpretation of its regulation in context is reasonable for a combination of a few factors. First, the Department of Labor contemporaneously enacted a regulation putting the, the burden on the employer in all cases. Second, when the EEOC took over rulemaking authority, it did insert this unusual discriminatory treatment language in there. But the EEOC's position at that time and ever since has been that it did not intend a substantive change. And third, discriminatory treatment 
while it undoubtedly throws a real wrench and wrinkle into things, excuse me, and takes us out of Chevron and into our, is not a term of art. Disparate treatment is a term of art. The regulations otherwise use the phrase different treatment, but discriminatory treatment is at best confusing, especially considering. Sorry, I thought our deference tells you how to interpret the regulation. And, and having once interpreted the regulation, you need to know what to do with it. You know, my understanding of our deference is that the, the agency gets deference as to the reasonable interpretation of its regulation. And the agency is consistent. Okay, we know what the regulation, we give it deference, we know what the regulation means. Now, does that regulation, as understood in light of our deference, get Chevron deference or something else? It would get Chevron deference. I mean, I think the two-step process is the regulation here, in our view, is clearly entitled to Chevron deference as far as it goes. And if you defer under our to the agency's view of its regulation, then that makes it a Chevron case. But it's through the, through the lens of our. And finally, as a policy matter, Justice Kennedy, one could reasonably place this burden of persuasion either way. I mean, this Court put it one place in Ward's Cove. Congress immediately abrogated Ward's Cove to put it in the other place. The sky is not going to fall either way. But if the te- even if the text wasn't so clear, one would logically put it on the employer for two reasons. First, all else being equal, the employer is at least in the better position to, do- to explain the reasonableness of its very own business practice. And second is that parties are not ordinarily expected to prove a negative, which is what the plaintiff would have to do here. And that's why in every statute enacted after 1964, which Why is it proving a negative? They would just have to prove um, that it was it, it was or was not a reasonable factor other than age. Right. And the yes, and just adding on to the Chief Justice's question, the employer is the one that proves a negative. You have to say there were no, we, here's a whole universe of other frameworks, and, and none of these work. Well, no, it's, it's, it's a very simple two-part test. Once the plaintiff has established an adverse effect, an adverse impact, I mean, even the defendant agrees that that presumptively establishes liability because the defendant agrees that there's at least the burden of production at that point. And, and the question for the employer is just to show that its business practice, its own business practice, is reasonable, is supported by some reasonable factor other than age. And it ought not be hard for an employer, especially considering that the reasonable standard is not very daunting, to explain why its own business practice is reasonable. And if an employer can't even persuade someone that its own business practice is reasonable, then the odds are that there is a problem. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Waxman. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. I want to make an argument both from elegance and from function and from structure. Under the employment discrim- a wide range of employment discriminations, beginning with this Court's decision in McDonnell Douglas, this Court has applied a three-step balance-shifting paradigm in order to help jury resolve the question of whether discrimination occurred. In the disparate treatment cases, there is a burden. The first step, the plaintiff has to establish a prima facie case that he was the subject of disparate treatment because of his race or sex. The burden of production then shifts to the defendant in order to explain under the disparate treatment cases a legitimate non-discriminatory reason, which eliminates the presumption consistent with Evidence Rule 301, and the burden of proof then resumes on the plaintiff to prove discrimination because of the prohibited characteristic. Now, in Ward's Cove, this Court looked both to Rule 301 
and to the paradigm in other discrimination cases to apply a three-part test in which there is a burden of proof to establish a presumption, a burden of production to neutralize it, and then a burden of proof to show because of race. The Second Circuit has done exactly that in this case, and we think they're right not just because that harmonizes this Court's prior discrimination cases, um, and not just because three seems to be more elegant than the four steps that the petitioners want or the two steps that the government wants, but because it makes sense. And this goes directly to the question, I think it was, that Justice Alito asked, whether or not the reasonable factors other than age inquiry is simply what's necessary to show liability, that is, that it was because of. The ADEA doesn't prohibit disparate treatment. It doesn't prohibit disparate impact. It prohibits doesn't prohibit employment practices simply because they correlate negatively with age. A plaintiff has to prove that he has suffered adverse employment action because of his age. And the question whether an employer based its action on reasonable factors other than age is part and parcel of that inquiry. It's Mr. not a freestanding confession part. and avoidance defense. The way you phrased the first part, uh, it sounded to me like uh, you were going back to the interpretation that this Court rejected, that is, under the Age Discrimination Act, there is only uh, differential treatment, not neutral factor with a differential impact. No, not at all. Not at all. If I, if I said that, I, I certainly don't want to be mistaken. We're not up here arguing that there is no disparate impact theory of liability under the ADEA as there is under Title VII. This Court resolved that question in Smith. And it, re it resolved it in large part by reference to the reasonable factors other than age provision, which Justice Stevens' opinion for a plurality of the Court explained that when you have a disparate treatment case, if the plaintiff proves that his, his or her treatment, well, if the defendant proves that it was because of something other than age, it isn't dis disparate treatment. The fact that there is an RFOA provision we think does reflect the fact that there is the potential for liability under disparate impact. But as this Court explained, it's narrower. And it's narrower because, not only because the 1991 amendments didn't apply to age cases, it's narrower because, as this Court has recognized in almost every age case it has decided, age unlike race and sex and religion and national origin, often does, sad to say, on, by somebody who is in his second decade of protection under the ADA, often does correlate with reasonable employment factors. And the fact that <laughs> all that it, what it means is that at step one of the burden-shifting analysis, the Wards-Cove analysis, which in a race or sex case establishes a strong presumption that the employment action was because of race or sex because there are so few employment characteristics that do correlate 
negatively with one's race or one's gender. It's a strong presumption which nonetheless need be met only by a burden of production. This Court has recognized that in the age context, the presumption actually is quite weak, and it would be more than perverse to adopt the government's proposal, which is that notwithstanding the much weaker inference, the burden of persuasion is now on the employer, not the employee. And, in fact, the principal problem, I would say, with the government, the EEOC's proposal — What do you proposal, do about the language otherwise prohibited? Excuse me? What do you do about that language in the statute? May I, may I just finish my sentence, sure. Justice Stevens, and go right to otherwise prohibited? The government's proposal under which, once the employer establishes the statistical disparity, the burden of proof shifts to the employer, equates what this Court has said over and over again is a prima facie case or a presumption into liability. It would dictate precisely the opposite result that this Court found in St. Mary's Honor Center. It would allow the jury, upon silence by the defendant, not to say, well, you may consider this presumption to be enough if you don't hear any other evidence. It would tell the jury the proof of statistical disparity is proof of discrimination, and that's just wrong. Now, otherwise prohibited. Even that, there's a question about it. not merely statistical disparity, but a causal connection between an identified practice and right. a disparity. That's, that's exactly right. Now, with respect to the structure of the statute and otherwise prohibited, the, my friends on the other side of this case turn almost everything on the fact that the reasonable factors other than age provision applies in, is in subsection F and is, as Justice Ginsburg said, is sandwiched in between two other provisions that, for argument's sake, let's just acknowledge are affirmative defenses on which the employer would bear the burden of proof. And why doesn't that prove anything? I'll go first to otherwise prohibited and then explain why the sandwich effect is no more persuasive here than it was to the Court in Betts. Otherwise prohibited means that it is prohibited subject to the following conditions. It doesn't say who bears the burden of those conditions. What it reflects, Justice Stevens, is this fact. You could have taken everything that is in F and just put it into A, but you would then have had to put it into B and C and E. And so what Congress said was, it didn't say um, not what's, things that are prohibited in, in Section A won't be unlawful if X, Y, and Z. It says otherwise prohibited in those sections. In other words, it doesn't have, it, it means nothing other than it's prohibited subject to the following conditions. Now, I will acknowledge for argument's purposes, and it actually suits my argument, to show that the BFOQ defense and the foreign employer defense are affirmative defenses. Because as we, as we know from Black's Law Dictionary and this Court's decisions, Dixon, for example, an affirmative defense is a defense that says, I admit the allegations of the complaint. 
but I have a justification for it that the law recognizes. Now, that's what Mr. Mr. Isn't the isn't the, 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 the weak point in your argument the following? Your argument assumes that when the employer implicitly says, I admit the allegations that the complaint are made, that the employer is admitting, in effect, to disparate treatment, that he's saying, I did it because it was my purpose to discriminate against the old. But if we read the because language as also admitting the, the meaning, uh, I did it or it had an impact by reason of the age, regardless of my intent, then this incongruity that you are arguing about disappears. No, it's quite to the contrary, unless, as, and it may be the case that I'm completely misunderstanding you. The point is that at step one, the plaintiff has to prove a statistical disparity, a substantial negative statistical correlation. And that raises a presumption that what was otherwise a neutral, appears to be a neutral factor was, in fact, because of age. The in other words, for the purpose of, of discriminating against the old. Whether it's, and you know, that's, undis- that's, that's, district, that's disparate treatment. Well, no. What, what, th- this, what this Court said in Griggs is there, there are proof problems. There are plenty of instances in which there is undiscovered, unreconciled, unacknowledged inferences about people. And old people is the perfect example where there's no history of invidious discrimination. There's no prior hurdle that, unlike black people and women, had to overcome, which was another factor in Griggs. It's that we all get old and people have preconceptions sometimes about the enormity of limitations of age, which may not be justified. So the way that these defenses, the sandwich, if you will, works, is the plaintiff under Ward's Cove, shows his statistical case. It's a prima facie. It shows that there is a disparate impact, period. But the the statute doesn't — Mr. Waxman, you have to keep in mind they're not just showing a disparate impact. Because of a particular practice, there's a disparate impact, which you leave out. So the the quality of the practice is what is at issue. And the the defendant doesn't come come in and say, I admit that it was unlawful. He first tries to prove it was necessary. And he, he fails on that. Having failed on that, he has the lesser burden of proving reasonable. No, well, let, let, I, let, me, let me see if I can address Justice Souter's point first. I do think I understand your point, which is what's wrong with the petitioner's case. Uh, Justice Souter, the point is that once a prima facie case is established in an age case, on, let's just take the three provisions that are at issue in F1. Under BFOQ, the the employer gets up and says, well, ladies and gentlemen, the judge is going to tell you that they've established a prima facie case that the way that these otherwise neutral, that, that this was because of the plaintiff's age. And you know what? I admit it. I, in fact, admit that it was, in, in, I acted in, because of age. In, in an impact, no, in an impact case, he's saying, I admit that the impact falls more heavily on the old. Correct. And that's the all reason that in, in that it seems to me that's all he has to admit uh, in, in an impact case. And he, he does so, and then he... What he basically calls. says is, I agree that age was the factor, but I have an excuse for it. And similarly, in the third exception, the foreign employer's exception, he comes in and says, you've heard all the statistics, and you know what? I did do this to disadvantage old people because my plant is in a country 
that discriminate, that makes it illegal for people over 65 to work. But in well, the — But then he's in, not dis- — did, he didn't do it to discriminate against old people. He did it because the foreign country required — That's certain. correct. And that's why I admit, I admit that I did this in a way that had a disparate impact on old people. I did it, if you will, in order to co- — but I have a justification for it. Whereas in the reasonable factors other than age — the, quest, the assertion is everybody understands that the plaintiff has the ultimate burden to prove that he or she suffered an adverse employment action because of age, not because of some factor that for entirely good reasons correlates with age. And the showing that there is a statistical well, then, you, then, you're, then you're just saying that, it, that there's no such thing as, as, as a disparate impact case. You're saying oh. you're, you're saying that there's got to be a disparate treatment. No, no, not at all. I mean, let's take and, their and I, let's I'm, take I'm, their fifty-pound hypothetical. The employer says, "Okay, from now on, all of our employees have to be able to lift fifty pounds over their head, you know, ten times in thirty seconds." And older people or women, let's say older people, um, you know, f- say, "Well, statistically, that has wiped us out. That's had a substantial, substantial adverse effect on us because we're old and we have less upper body strength." And the employer then gives and comes forward with a legitimate non-discriminatory reason or a reasonable factor other than age, and says, for example, "Well, you know, this is we 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 need our employees to to be able to lift strong things." If the plaintiff comes back and says, "I am an accountant." That's not reasonable. It's a very different case than if this is a requirement imposed on stocking clerks in an auto auto parts shop where you do have to lift very heavy things over your head. In other words, the paradigm that this Court set out in Ward's Cove applies exactly the same way. It applies a three-part test, except that at step three, the standard of justification is different in, and this I think, I hope Justice Stevens goes to your question. In Ward's Cove, this court said, you show a prima facie case of a disparate impact. The burden then, the burden of production then shifts to the employer to explain that it was, there is a business just, to articulate a business justification for the facially neutral requirement. And what the plaintiff then has to do is bear the burden of proving that that wasn't a business necessity, that there is one other way, one other way in which it could have been done, and therefore — But you there, agree there's a distinction between business necessity and business reasonableness? Yes. And, in fact, I think it's sort of embedded in the very opening of the blue brief in this case, where the petitioner says, well, the Court has sometimes used the word business justification and the Court has sometimes used the word business necessity, and we don't really think that means anything, so we'll use the words interchangeably. But this case shows that it means everything, because at step three of Ward's Cove, the petition, the plaintiff's burden is proving that it is that there is one other way that you, all you have to show is that it wasn't a necessity to do it that way in order to achieve your objective, and the employee wins. But because of the differential in correlation between age and employment factors, in this case, it is a business justification. That is, the employee has to come in and say, 
It just wasn't reasonable to use that. And this case is a perfect example. Here we have a research lab that has one client. It's the Nuclear Reactor Division of the United States Submarine Unit. And they come and they say, and there is no dispute about the facts here, they say the Cold War is over. We aren't going to have as much work for you. And since you're cost plus, you're going to have to reduce your workforce. And because we're in a different kind of war, we have new missions. You are going to have to design and engineer and implement things that you hadn't done it before. And so you need to figure out a way to go ahead and do this. And what the company did was to go through all of its units and then subunits and sections and say, given the new mission that the Navy has told us we're going to have to occupy, do you have people? You do have more people than you're going to be get to get paid for to do what you have to do. If the answer is yes, if the answer is no, you're fine. If the answer is yes, please consider the following: What are the skills within the people within your section, subsection, or unit that are excess? That, in light of the reduced and changed mission, we don't need. Identify those skills. Then go through each one of your employees, and if it is an employee with that skill, rank them on a scale of 1 to 10 according to four different characteristics. Seniority, which gives a benefit to older workers. Recent job performance ratings. The criticality of the other skills they have. Do they have some other skill that is going to be required? and their flexibility. How willing have they been or are they to learn new skills? And the company has a training manual. It goes through and trains the managers to do this. It is approved by the Department of Energy and the Department of Navy. And after the managers engage in this analysis and prepare this matrix, they then have to justify it before a central review board, which the plaintiff's own expert acknowledged was set up in order to make the managers defend each decision and make sure that those judgments corresponded with overall management's responsibilities. Still, the numbers, the way it came out, are rather startling, that there were 31 people who were riffed, and of those, 30 turned out to be over 40. That's correct. And as the District Court found and the Court of Appeals found, those were strikingly stark numbers. They were so stark that they came to the immediate attention of the company's management and general counsel, Mr. Correa, who was — who looked at this and said, we're, we're going to get sued for age discrimination. What should we do about this? And what he did about this, what the proof showed, is he went back and said, is each one of these decisions justifiable? Did they really apply these factors? He testified that he considered just saying, well, go back and redo it so that the age distribution comes out right. But he was concerned that the New York Human Rights Law, which defines — this is sort of astounding — defines older worker as somebody over 18, does have a reverse discrimination provision. But the point here is, and therefore he decided, we did this right, we used a, 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 a matrix that, that, that unrebutted testimony said was the paradigm in industry. But the, the terms, and, flexibility, criticality, I mean, the way you described it, it, it sounds very mechanical, mathematical, but those terms are, they call for some human judgment. They definitely do. And the second question that was presented in this case, which the Court didn't accept, 
was an assertion by the petitioner that the Second Circuit had assertedly held that where a, a reasonable factor other than age derives from a subjective judgment, the Second Circuit had held that it was immune from review under disparate impact theory, which, as the government pointed out in its invitation brief, is not at all what the Second Circuit held. The point is that this Court in Smith and in earlier at Hazen paper and earlier age cases was highly cognizant of the fact that unless there is a test that implies that, that applies certainty for employers, there is going to be age. If, if this standard isn't reasonable, and if it isn't up to the other side to prove that it's unreasonable, employers are essentially going to take age into account. They are going to do what Mr. Correa testified he wouldn't do, which is rejigger the results to come up with a number, a percentage that more approximated the balance in the workforce. And that, this Court has said repeatedly. Well, maybe because he thought that given the subjectivity of some of these factors, that there was at least unconscious age bias in the decisions that were made. Well, but Justice Ginsburg, that is why, and it was testimony both from the employees in the case and from our uncross-examined expert and even their expert, the review board, the company set up a central review board which was trained and which examined every single manager about every single decision, whether you call it subjective or objective. Now, the district court, the trial court who heard the testimony said that he, he deemed flexibility and criticality objective. He said they were objective factors because of all the instructions that were given, which we have reprinted in the joint appendix in this case. But even assuming, and I, I, I certainly take your point, Justice Ginsburg, that if you ask a manager to evaluate an employee on the degree of criticality of that employee's skills or the flexibility of that employee, you can give her all the training in the world. You can give her a 16-point checklist. Ultimately, you're relying on a judgment by a human being of another human being. But why would we not want employers to do that? Why would we want them to, to retreat to the safe harbor of some safe quota? You know, gee, we have a 60-40 split in our workforce, and, wow, these numbers, we did it according to Hoyle. We've done, this is the paradigm riff process, but go back and do it a way that comes out Counsel, with a different set of numbers. Counsel, is your recent discussion about what happened here go simply to, I guess, your alternative argument that we should affirm because you're right, regardless of who bears the burden, or does it really go to the legal question before us? Well, I think it goes to both. I mean, it goes to it, — it simply — it certainly goes to the question over whether whoever has the burden on reasonableness, you ought to do what you did in Smith and what the Eleventh Circuit did in Montalvo, which is the case you cited in Smith, and what Judge Hodel — Here we have a jury verdict that was affirmed by the Court of Appeals. Well, we have a Fact jury issue. verdict — we have a jury verdict under Ward's Cove. The Court of Appeals, as we pointed out in — to the Court of Appeals the first time, and in our petition for certiorari here the last time, 
and to the Court of Appeals the second time, and to this Court on pages 4, 5, and 7 of our brief in opposition this time, the Court of Appeals was simply wrong in both Step 1 and Step 3 of Ward's Cove. This is even assuming Ward's Cove were the test. There is, under Step 3 of Ward's Cove, which is how this case was tried, it was conceitedly the plaintiff's burden to prove that there was some other way, one other way, to do what the company wanted that established that this wasn't a business necessity. And I will represent to the Court that in five and a half weeks of testimony, there is not one sentence of evidence to that effect. But that this was taken out of it by Judge Jacobs when he redid it. He said, we were on the wrong track with business necessity. Business necessity is out. It's only reasonable factor. Other what, Judge, what Judge Jacobs said is the case was tried under business necessity, under, under which the plaintiffs at least had to prove that there was some other way that the company could equally have achieved well, its Was objective. the issue of reasonable factor underage uh, tried in the trial court when, when the case was tried? No, because the EEOC regulation at the time, Regulation D, which deals with disparate impact cases, said that reasonable, the reasonable factors other than age provision is proven by and only by the business necessity defense, a defense as to which the plaintiffs bear the burden. And, in fact, in Ward's Cove, the government in Ward's Cove was on the employer's side. The government urged the court to do exactly what it did. And under the government's own regulation, 1625.7d, the burden of proving reasonable factors other than age was correctly on the plaintiff, but incorrectly equated with the substantive showing of his Am I correct to understand that your trial counsel then took the position, you must prove uh, business necessity, I mean, uh, an absence of business necessity, rather than reasonableness. They didn't, didn't advance their strongest defense. Well, no, we, we took the position that reasonable factors other than age was a separate test and was a separate right. defense. The judge instructed the jury to the contrary and but said, why was, was under judge, Ward's code. Was Judge Pooler wrong then? She said, in effect, you forfeited reasonable factor other than sex because you didn't bring it up. You were going on business necessity. Well, what happened was, I mean, Judge Pooler is wrong in certain respects, but not that respect. We, our answer pleaded reasonable factors other than age. But we didn't, neither we nor our opponents asked for a separate instruction on reasonable factors other than age. The jury was instructed on the Ward's Cove analysis. The jury didn't hear a word about reasonable factor other than age. They heard about business, business necessity. That's correct. I mean, the, and, and that's because you could say that it was a mutual mistake by everyone involved, but the EEOC had directed under subsection D of its regulations that reasonable factor other than age could be established only by proving business necessity. And the everybody now knows that was wrong. That's correct. And the, my point is we are, we are entitled to judgment in our favor. We are entitled to an affirmance because, number one, the Second Circuit was correct that the burden of proving reasonableness was on them. And the, the petitioners have acknowledged expressly 
on page 53 of their blue brief that if, in fact, it is true that the second — if the Second Circuit is, in fact, correct, then the judgment is affirmed. That is, they say, when a, while a defendant has no obligation to press an issue upon which the plaintiff bears the burden of proof, and therefore the Second Circuit may have been justified in reviewing the evidence of reasonableness in light of its holding that petitioners bore the burden of proof. Did you plead this as an affirmative defense? <clears throat> Did you plead it as an affirmative defense? We pleaded it as a se- — I can't, I can't bring the complaint to mind, but we pr- pleaded it as a separately specified defense, yes. We said in our answer to the complaint, we said this is a reasonable factor other than age. And so we are — everyone acknowledges that if the Second Circuit is correct as to where the burden applies, the judgment should be affirmed. Our submission is that the judgment has to be affirmed whether or not the burden applies as the Second Circuit held. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Mr. Russell, you have four minutes remaining. I'd like to begin by addressing the the general legal question that the Court granted cert on, Um, and and particularly going back to this idea, uh, this assertion that the the, the proof of the RFOA is somehow a negation of the the obligation that the plaintiff has to prove that they have suffered a disparate impact because of age. That is simply incorrect. It's based, as Justice Souter, I think you were suggesting in some of your questions, on a a confusion about what the because of age uh, requirement is in a disparate impact case under Section 4A2. The requirement under Section 4A2 is simply to show that the effect of the practice is felt because of age, while the defense in the RFOA uh, provision is uh, to show that the practice itself is reasonable, even though it has this effect. If a practice, if a practice correlates with a number of statistically correlates with a number of different factors, is it because of all of those factors? I think under Ward's Cove, this court has said that it does, and so under Ward's Cove, you establish that the discrimination is felt by older workers because of age by showing that older workers as a group suffer disproportionately from it. Well, Woods Cove, in other words, says because may mean correlation and it may mean purpose, either one. Yes, I mean, but I think all you have to show under 4A2 is that uh, the practice tends to disadvantage older workers because of their age. And so, again, in our weight, weight example, the employer admits in our weight example that the effect of the neutral practice is to fall more heavily, is to restrict the employment opportunities of older workers because of age, but says even if that's true, even if there's a disparate impact because of age, we are still entitled to the defense because the practice itself is reasonable. Uh, It's also, I would like to address this suggestion that Griggs is directed, or disparate impact is directed at ferreting out uh, intentional discrimination. Certainly it serves that function in many cases, but that's not uh, the sole purpose of it, and it's simply not the purpose of the prima facie case in Ward's Cove to give rise to an inference of intentional discrimination. And the fact that it doesn't as strongly in the age case, I, I think, isn't a reason to think that Congress intended uh, the courts to develop a different test for showing what's otherwise prohibited under 4A2. And finally, if I could uh, address some of the questions regarding what happened in this case. This case, Justice Stevens, was not tried with reasonableness in mind, both because respondents 
abandoned their reasonable factor other than age defense, which they had raised as an affirmative defense uh, in their answer. I, I believe Mr. Waxman is incorrect when he suggests that they, in fact, well, asked for instruction. If he put in all the evidence he's described, that would not prove a business necessity. It seems to me that evidence had to go to the issue of reasonableness. Uh, it, it may have been relevant to reasonableness, but that's not why it was put in. Before the trial began — Was he arguing that it was necessary to, to uh, follow this one downsizing practice? They certainly, I think, they, they used that argument to show that they had a business justification and, and to try to rebut our showing of alternative equally effective practices. But it was clear by the time of trial that you know, they had proposed jury instructions that didn't ask for uh, reasonableness to be part of the case. We proceeded with the case on the assumption that we would be entitled to prevail under those instructions so long as we showed that the current practice, reasonable or not, had a disparate impact and was subject to an equally effective alternative. And just one other detail. Did, the district judge did not instruct the jury on the, this defense. It did not. did not. The only instruction was that we'd be entitled to prevail if we showed Ward's Cove. Um, and it's kind of an unusual case where the decisive issue, at least when we get to this court, is something the jury never passed on. Well, I, th- I think that's right. And, and ordinarily, I think you would say that the defendants, by not raising the issue to the jury, if it's an affirmative defense, have waived it. Um, they ask for an excuse given that the change in law. We don't think that the change in law excuses their failure to waive it. The, the, the regulation that they point to, uh, they themselves, I've argued here, isn't entitled to much of any deference. And in fact, at the same time, they're simultaneously arguing that there wasn't even any disparate impact liability in the first place under the ADA. So I don't think they can actually claim that they were relying on that. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.